you know, you hear people say control the controllables and it can be frustrating because when you've invested so much time and effort into one thing or even financially, you've you've booked airfares, paid a race entry fee and then you get a massive curveball thrown. I think it's okay to, to feel a little upset about it, but then don't dwell on it too long. Try and regroup and turn it into a positive. I mean, all the training, all the fitness will still be there. Again, it, you just got to think on your feet and be flexible and fluid with, with your plans. You know, I would, if I had a race scheduled in the next week or two and people were, were setting themselves for that, and maybe they've come through a big 12 or 16 week block of training and they're in taper mode, maybe have a hit out, a big hit out, an indoor hit out somehow. That was the three-time Ironman world champion and two-time Ironman 70.3 world champion, Craig Alexander. And this is his story on the Pacing Racing Podcast. All right, what's happening, everyone? Welcome back, and welcome to any first-time listeners out there. My name is Stephen Langenhaus, and I'm the host of the Pace Racing Podcast. So the lineup keeps getting better and better, with this latest guest being the legendary Craig Alexander. So every now and then, we get the privilege to speak to an athlete who has played a big role in shaping our sport into, frankly, what it is today. So Craig has been competing in the sport for over 25 years now, and is still continuing to perform at top-level caliber. Now, Craig's won over 50 Ironman 7.3 wins to his name with over five world titles and an endless list of accolades. Craig has a wife and three kids and is led by example in what it takes to get longevity out of the sport, all while keeping balance in your family life. So Craig's been announced as one of the team captains for Team International in the Collins Cup via the Professional Triathletes Organization. So Craig's here today to chat with us about what the Collins Cup is all about and how he will approach it his first race as a captain and we dive into race tactics, race details and so much more. Now you're all probably thinking by now is this race even going to happen now with COVID-19 and to be honest guys our guess is as good as yours. I mean I don't think we'll know until the next month or so and see how that shapes out to look like but if this race doesn't happen at the end of May you can be rest assured it will be postponed and it will be one exciting race to watch. Now, as we speak on the topic of COVID-19, we also talk about the training as age groupers and our professional triathletes throughout a season with race potentials, frankly, unknown. Now, with Craig, over 25 years experience in the sport, shares some incredible motivation and insight that I definitely think you should hear if you're feeling overwhelmed or unsure on where to take your training from here. So just to end off the chat, Craig dives into his on-course race fueling strategies, and we also chat about his everyday diet and healthy lifestyle habits, which have allowed him to truly get longevity in the sport and how we can do the same in our own journeys. So it's an awesome, awesome podcast, guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And now let's get into it. The sponsor of today's podcast is brought to you by Quintana Roo Triathlon Bikes. I'm absolutely ecstatic and humbled to be working alongside Quintana Roo as they have the best lineup of triathlon bikes and products out there on the market. And to be riding a Quintana Roo bike is honestly a dream come true. Now, Quintana Roo actually started making triathlon bikes all the way back in 1989 and have since created the nicest looking designs and the most top performing features I've seen. And after a ton of research, I went with the PR5, seeing as I'll be doing my first full distance triathlon at Challenge Roth this summer. So I want to make sure I was equipped with the best bike and the best gear. 
and I can't wait to show this bike off. So currently right now I'm working alongside JP at Brown Sports on a bike fit video, which is going to be awesome because for those who don't know about that shop, they sell and do bike fits on QR bikes all the time. So you can stay tuned for that by simply subscribing to the Pace Racing YouTube channel. And another reason I went with Quintana Roo bikes were that when you ride with QR, you essentially become family. Now at any Ironman or USA triathlon event that QR is attending, you can bring your QR bike to the booth and they'll do a free checkup and tune up, which is super, super cool because it takes the worry out of your racing and traveling. The bike also comes with lifetime warranties. So when you look at the 2019 Kona bike list, you can see why they had over 120 Quintana Roo bikes there. They're absolutely a great brand to ride with and the bikes are well suited for challenging courses like Kona. And another neat fact, when you order from Quintana Roo, all the bikes are pulled, painted and built for each customer order that comes through the door. So much so that they fall within the NAFTA guidelines and Canadian customers don't actually get hit with any duty on any QR products when they're shipped to Canada. So I think that's pretty neat if you're living here in Canada. And I mean, as you can hear, of course, I'm a big fan of not only their bikes, but also their brand and service in general. So stay tuned because you'll be seeing lots of the PR5 across social media. So be sure to be subscribed to all platforms. And again, if you want to learn more about Quintana Roo, then of course, you can simply find them by searching them on Facebook or Instagram by searching Quintana Roo or head to www.quintanarootry.com. And again, Quintana Roo is spelt Q-U-I-N-T-A-N-A-R-O-O. So, Greg, what's up, man? Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, how things been going? Yeah, good, good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Firstly, um, obviously, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around at the moment with what's going on in the world. But um, yeah, no, it's nice to, I guess, get on and still talk some triathlon and what's going on in the world of triathlon. For sure, right? And that was sort of my whole thing uh, when this when this all started to evolve to is uh, that fine line of talking about you know events that may or may not happen versus also just kind of getting out there. And at the end of the day, everyone still loves triathlon. They still love training and they still kind of want to hear from the pros and the the people who they, they look up to. So I thought, you know, let's just keep rolling with this. And uh, I guess you were uh, one of the fortunate athletes out there who were able to get an early season race in, right? So, I mean, how'd that go? Yeah, no, it was good. I raced in Geelong at the Australian Long Course Champs, the Geelong 70.3, uh, and I had a good day. It was my first race in nearly 12 months, a very strong field. Typically, it always gets a strong field, that race, because it's, I guess, the first major race of the new year. So, um, you know, you're always hoping for a podium finish, but um, I finished probably in the end about 40 or 50 seconds off the podium, and I was relatively happy with my performance there. Um, for a number of reasons. It was the first race of about four or five I had scheduled. And what I've noticed as I've gotten older is, yeah, it takes me at least a race to really, I guess, shake off the ring rust, if you will, um, which wasn't the case earlier in my career. I could I could have a prolonged layoff, either enforced or otherwise, and still come out of the, out of the gates pretty quickly at an event. But, um, you know, I think age changes things physically for you. So, um, and I'm mindful of that. You know, racing's not my day-to-day priority like it used to be I still I still love to train and race um in the last two or three years anyway I've scheduled four or five races a season um but yeah I guess it's not my focus like it used to be where I would set up my whole yearly schedule around a couple of major races and a few other events and and then a training and and traveling schedule in and around that so uh, but it's still nice to be able to race it at a high level and as I said I still love it um, part of my motivations these days is just, I guess, general health and wellness. It's, it's part of my daily routine to train. I love to do it. 
the training's definitely not as structured as it used to be. Uh, and also my, my oldest daughter is quite an accomplished young athlete, so I like to train with her. I can do some easy runs with her and, um, yeah, that sort of enhances my enjoyment of it, just being able to, to share a little bit of training and, and the odd run with my daughter. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, I, I definitely think that could resonate with a lot of listeners too, right? Because, you know, you're in it for the longevity of the sport, the health and wellness aspect. And of course, you're, you have that balance so well, so fine-tuned, I guess, with the family and triathlon dynamic, right? So, uh, you know, what? I guess there's, at first, there's a lot I want to talk about here today with you, I guess. Uh, we'll get into the Professional Triathletes Organization. And of course, we'll get into the Collins Cup. And uh, also, we're going to talk about, I guess, the COVID-19 impacts on, on the season ahead that was kind of unexpected, right? But before, I guess, we dive into all those sort of hot topics, let's take a step back here and, and let's hear about your early triathlon career days, I guess. Uh, like, when did you get into the sport originally and what made you want to go professional? I, I started doing triathlons in the mid-1990s. Mid I was at Sydney University studying to be a physiotherapist. I was always sort of interested in it. I didn't do the sport or any endurance sports growing up, really. I played soccer growing up from the age of six until I was about 20. Um, soccer was my first sporting love and I still love the game actually. I try and help coach my son's team. He he loves playing soccer as well. So I uh, still watch it on TV. I'm, a, I guess, a lifelong soccer fan. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess about that was about the time when triathlon was coming to more prominence. Um, there were big events around the world and particularly in Australia, it was starting to get some mainstream media because we had a couple of triathletes, namely Greg Welsh on the men's side and McKeely Jones on the women's side who were winning some big races around the world. And, you know, obviously you could flick the TV on once a year and watch the Hawaiian Ironman, which was a highlight. I used to love to watch that race. It was probably the first triathlon I ever saw actually. But then it wasn't too unusual to flick the TV on and see a race like St. Croix or Chicago on TV as well because, uh, you know, Greg and McKeeley won both those races and Greg obviously in 1994 went on to win in Kona. He was the first non-American ever to take the title on the Big Island uh, on the men's side and so that got huge media back home and that really was the catalyst that got me into it. I was sort of getting back into some sport after not playing some sport for a while, being at uni and giving up soccer and I really did about six or 12 months of what we used to call biathlon races, swim runs. Um, we used to have a lot of swim run races that the surf clubs here used to run um, almost weekly. Uh, so I did a lot of those events. And my best mate at university at the time was a very good cyclist, an accomplished cyclist, rode A grade. And he used to do some triathlons for cross training. And he knew I was interested. I was always asking him, asking him questions about the sport and you know, he sort of suggested to me one day that I, I, he could help me get a bike uh, and get me started. So that's what we did. We, you know, that was back in the days where you would have the classifieds and, and you would buy things out of the newspaper. So I, I found a bike in the, in the newspaper and he came with me to look at it and I, I purchased that bike for about five or $600, I think, back in the day. And then it was on a Thursday or Friday and I did my first race on the Sunday, which was a sprint race here in Sydney. And, um, yeah, that was around the mid-90s. So that's what got me into the sport and, and, I, and I loved it. I mean, I think, as I said, before even I did my first triathlon, I had watched many years of Hawaii on TV and also some other races and I was just really interested in it. I, I was always interested in 
sports that had more than one discipline like like triathlon or like the decathlon and the heptathlon at the Olympics. I used to love to watch those two events. Um, I was very interested by athletes who could master more than one discipline at a very high level. So I guess it appealed to my my nature, my personality, and really that's what led me to the sports. So, you know, I'd love to sit here and say that I had a long background all through my teenage years as an endurance athlete, but that's not really the case. I mainly played team sports growing up and was just interested in, in triathlon and watched it from afar and, and then got into it myself. That's incredible. Eh? So, to, I mean, to hear the humble beginnings, I guess, and, you know, you weren't just born necessarily to do triathlon, right? You weren't born into a triathlon family, you know, doing it through school. It just sort of came naturally, which is really amazing to hear, right? Because, I mean, looking back, so since then, you've now won the five world titles. You've had over 50 professional wins. Like, I, I don't even think we can summarize all the accolades within the hour here. So, I mean, like, let's narrow in on a specific race point in your career, I guess. Is there a moment that sort of stands out in your career that you look back at as your most memorable highlight? Uh, it's a good, no, there's pivotal moments for sure. And I think they're, they're important in your development for different reasons. And they might, might not be the ones that people on the outside looking in might think. Um, obviously the world championship wins are important and, but sometimes it's also the tough defeats where you learn the lessons or, Maybe it's a light bulb moment where um, things change for you physically or mentally. Um, as you mentioned, though, it certainly is a different sport now. I think, you know, triathlon's evolved into a lot of great things. For a long time it was, I guess, Ironman was the main focus, but then we were lucky enough to get Olympic status as a sport. Um, and I think Tokyo this year, if it goes ahead, will be like the sixth inclusion of triathlon in the Olympics. I think that's been huge for our sport. and. Mm-hmm. just the growth globally um, in the different regions like the growth regions of Asia and, and South America they're the main sort of growth regions that I've noticed them probably the last five years um, and the way it's now a school sport uh, and obviously college scholarship sport too um, I think the sports evolved into a lot of great things and part of our evolution is I guess getting acceptance into these different arenas I know my daughter does does triathlon as a school sport now um she's 14 so you know it was never in the schools when i was coming through so it's just it's just a different sport but in terms of pivotal moments i think i think the main thing you know i brought into the sport when i started in my early 20s was just a desire to want to enjoy it and to really improve i made a commitment to improve daily um to really be the best athlete I could. I didn't sort of sit around in the early days and set goals of winning gold medals or world titles. It was more about I, I knew I loved the sport and I felt, um, you know, I felt I had the good natural talent for it, obviously. I mean, I must have shown some signs of natural talent in the beginning to, to progress so rapidly, but it was more around just wanting to uh, fulfill that potential, I guess, and do the things I could do to maximize my, my journey and my experience. Um, really. And, and that was just a commitment I kept coming back to, even with the wins and the losses that were stacking up along the way. And there was plenty of both. Um, I always came back to just that self commitment I'd made to always want to improve. Uh, And for me, that's a lot of where the enjoyment came from that, that process of even after you know, winning world titles, I don't think your journey has ended. You're still trying to improve and put polish onto your your performances, whether it be physical or mental or tactical, um, all those things. So um, 
Now, obviously, the World Championship victories and the podium finishes come to mind. That they were they were wonderful moments that you get to share with your family and your training partners and sponsors. But equally, there's there's many performances that you know people won't read about if they Google search you that were probably humbling defeats. And I remember there was many many a time you know you you're traveling home from a race with your, your tail between your legs and bitterly disappointed, not really with the result, but Usually, with the performance, you haven't you haven't delivered what you you've been training to do, and it's back to the drawing board. So, it's a very tough question to answer. Was was there one moment specifically? You know, you know, I remember winning the Lifetime Fitness Race in two thousand and five, which I guess is a bit of background for people who don't know. Throughout the the early two thousands and even this past decade, the the triathlon scene in North America was very healthy with a lot of non-drafting, short-distance racing, Olympic-distance races like Chicago, St. Croix, Alcatraz, St. Anthony's, the LA Triathlon. And it was usually where a lot of the ITU athletes and athletes not on the ITU circuit would converge because a lot of those races would have good prize money. And there were two in particular, Lifetime Fitness, which ran from 2002 through to 2007. In Minnesota, and another race, um, the High V race, which ran in Des Moines, for, had about a five-year run. I want to say from about 2007 through to 2011 or 12, they were invitation-only races. Um, you had to submit your resume to get in, and they were very competitive. Huge prize purses, uh, massive media coverage. They were live on television in the US and uh, further around the world. And that for me was uh, I won I won the the lifetime fitness one in Minnesota in two thousand and five. So I think it's validating on a lot of fronts. It was a huge at the time. It was the highest prize purse in the history of our sports. So that was a two hundred thousand dollar payday. And you know, not that I was motivated by money, but I at the time my wife and I had just become parents. We had an eight week old daughter, Lucy, our eldest. And also, I had drifted away from ITU racing for a lot of reasons. Um, I found my niche racing in the US, and it was kind of hard to, um, I guess, reconcile that with our national federation, Triathlon Australia, who really wanted you, if you wanted to be selected for the major championships on the ITU circuit, you really had to race exclusively ITU races, and and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do some non-drafting races. I wanted to do some half Ironmans, some sprint distance I wanted to mix it up. So um, by my own choice, I, I sort of, I guess, exiled myself from, from TA, Triathlon Australia, and, and any one exclusive style of racing. And But as a competitive person and as an athlete, you know, you watch the IT races and you think, well, how would I stack up against those guys? And luckily, we had one or two races a year in the US where you got to find out, and that was one of them. So... I guess to answer your question, that for me was a pivotal moment and I got to race at the time the two reigning Olymp- or the reigning Olympic champion, Hamish Carter, from the year before. He'd won in Athens and our sports only other Olympic champion on the men's side at the time, Simon Whitfield. Obviously, you guys know very well. He'd won in Sydney plus all the Olympic podium finishes from both those events and, um, you know, and thrown into the mix were all the great non-drafting athletes like Craig Walton and Greg Bennett. So for me, that was a pivotal race, I guess, in my journey. Um, you know, I was mixing up the formats and the styles of racing and the distances, but 
that was certainly one race I I focused on every year because it was so competitive because of the media coverage. It was a great race. Um, if you performed well, obviously you could attract sponsors and, and the prize purse as well, but more so as a competitor, um, racing the best short course athletes in the world, that's, it was a very validating uh, race win for me. So, but I think like equally there were, there were performances that probably don't or didn't get the media coverage or the exposure that were as important in my journey, I think, because each race you do has some learning moments and, and some positive and negative reinforcement that you get that just I really think keeps you going along your path and for you know whatever goals you've set for yourself. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint you know the key moments. There's just there's just so many. Exactly right. I mean, so I guess like you've been racing professional for over 25 years now, and and as you mentioned there, it's incredible to hear that you went long course, short course, like the ITU format. You've been around all sorts of triathlon. What sort of message could you pass on about you know getting the longevity and getting the best out of your race career, like? Uh, what are some things that you did, you know, to prevent burnout or what advice could you give athletes listening in right now uh, that are in the sport for the long haul? Yeah, I think mainly, hopefully the whole thing's underpinned by a passion that you have to train and improve. And, you know, you have your own ideas of what success looks like for you. And that might be to get in shape and do an Olympic distance race. It might be to lose weight. It might be to hang out with your, your training partners. Um, you know, they're all worthwhile objectives and goals to have. I think there's there's no right or wrong answer on that front. I think hopefully you're driven by a passion and a love for it. That's the first thing that I think will underpin longevity. You know, at different times in a career, you might be motivated by different things. As a pro athlete, it might be money at some times. It might be recognition. It might be whatever. But I think they're, they're more short-term motivations. The, for me, the, the thing that's sort of underwritten or underwritten my whole career was just a motivation to always train and improve and a love for it. That were the two things I really had a love for the sport. Um, so I used to, as much as training, there were KPIs and parameters to hit. There was a, a massive enjoyment factor for me. So I would suggest to people that, you know, if you have that, that's the maybe the first box you need to check in terms of longevity. Um, doesn't hurt to set yourself a few goals and have, have some idea in what you're yeah, in your head of what a successful um, journey through the sport will look like for you, and again, that's I can tell everyone what my benchmarks were, but really, that's a that's an individual and a personal question, and there's no right or wrong. If you know something's meaningful to you, then it will drive you over a long period of time. So, um, I think too at different times it helps to to find a nice balance, and you mentioned it before with balance and and your training and racing. You know, at different times, you're going to be more focused on family life and profession, your career. And other times, triathlon will figure into that balance a lot more. And getting that balance right is the challenge for all of us, I think. Again, there's no right or wrong answers here. It, it's tied up again in what your family and work commitments are, what your goals are for within the sport. Um, but it, beca- it can be very tricky to navigate all of that. Uh, but it comes down to, again, scheduling your time and scheduling your season in advance and your year in advance, um, knowing what your goals are around your personal life, family life, professional life. And then I think lastly, triathlon fits in there somewhere too and, um, and planning, planning your time accordingly. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a tough balance, I think, and I, even at times as a professional athlete where it was my career to train and race, I, I felt the balance was still too heavily 
towards triathlon and it just became more consuming. Um, and that's okay at different times. You know, I think you need to be, as a pro athlete, I know I was obsessed with my performance and obsessed with doing the little things that, and the big things that would lead to better performance. Um, but I think it becomes healthy over time if you want to be in it over a long period of time and maintain the rage year after year and be able to have that consistency that we all dream about as athletes. Um, you need to find a good balance there um, and a healthy balance. And again, that looks different for, for every athlete, but it's something you definitely need to be mindful of and, and strive to find that nice balance. For sure. So I'm actually glad you touched base on a lot of amazing tips there. And hopefully that can uh, respond well with a lot of listeners too, because, uh, you know, I was just talking with Simon Whitfield on a previous podcast and he mentions a lot of the same things where it comes to it's that balance throughout your career, right? Uh, you guys as pro triathletes out there at the top of your game, there has been some moments where you've been all in hundred percent into triathlon and there's others where you had to step back and I guess a perfect example for you over a 25 year career, you had, you had children, uh, you know, lots of things changed in your life. So uh, just to kind of hear that perspective at when you would think about longevity in the sport, there's a time and place for going all in and there's time to kind of set back and keep balanced. I, I really like to hear that. So, uh, I think that's awesome advice. Yeah. It, and sometimes you only learn through trial and error and experience, um, and sort of treading a tightrope between, those different elements, and sometimes you get it wrong, but it's, it's that's okay. You just got to reassess and then and, and reset and, and try and find a better balance. I think also in an individual sport, and it is an individual sport, it can help to to maybe make it social sometimes. If if your listeners are really struggling with motivation at different points throughout their journey or throughout their season, you know sometimes you need to put the that training plan on the back burner and just maybe get a little bit more social or bring in a social element to the training program. So you still get the work done, but mix it up a little bit. I mean, training can look a lot of different ways uh, and still get a great outcome. Um, but I think it's important to understand sometimes emotionally and mentally, you need things that maybe your current situation is not delivering and you need to address those things for your own, I guess, mental well-being, and just mix things up, you know, be creative with your training, maybe, substitute some of those long solo sessions when the motivation's waning and make it more social. Um, there's a lot of training platforms now that are very engaging that you can do indoors or remotely. And not, there's no substitute for a great group run or group ride either or meeting a group to go swimming in a master squad with. So, you know, you can be creative with your training program and you, can, and you need to be flexible. I think that's the main thing. Just be fluid with it and understand what your needs are at the time and the needs of those people around you and, and, and try and address those. Perfect. No, I absolutely think that's, that's great advice. And you know what, I guess that that's some great information coming at, you know, a time at where we are right now, March, 2020, kind of with everything going on with COVID-19, right. Uh, where a lot of people had big race plans throughout the season and, you know, the races that are coming up with the next month or so, I guess they're getting postponed or canceled. Now people are uncertain what's going to happen kind of in the, the rest of the season. Right. So yeah, I guess we just so much uncertainty again, you've just got to you know, you hear people say control the controllables and it can be frustrating because when you've invested so much time and effort into one thing or even financially, you've you've booked airfares, paid a race entry fee and then you get a massive curveball thrown. I think it's okay to, to feel a little upset about it, but then don't dwell on it too long. Try and regroup and 
turn it into a positive. I mean, all the training, all the fitness will still be there. Again, it, you just got to think on your feet and be flexible and fluid with, with your plans. You know, I would, if I had a race scheduled in the next week or two and people were, were setting themselves for that and maybe they've come through a big 12 or 16-week block of training and they're in taper mode, maybe have a hit out, a big hit out, an indoor hit out somehow. You know, there's a lot of public health sort of recommendations going on right now. They're telling big groups not to meet for the purposes of trying to contain the spread of the virus and, and that that's a necessity for public health right now. But as athletes, I mean, you can still get on your indoor trainer and, and set up some sort of, I guess, challenging workout or a run on the treadmill to at least sort of validate and use that fitness and see maybe it'll give you a good benchmark of where the fitness is currently at too. So whilst not quite the same as doing the race, you know, it's, it's still going to be a release for you. And as an athlete, I think when you've been under a heavy workload or a long build-up and then you go through a taper, you, you want to use all that fitness and and that freshness. And I would I would suggest setting up sort of a mock race or a race simulation that you can do on your own. Not only will it make you feel better, you'll also see your level of performance too and it'll give you a nice little benchmark moving forward of where your fitness was actually at. And maybe like all races, when you do the, the analysis afterwards, gives you some areas to work on maybe or gives you some feedback on how effective your training has been in those last few months. But then also look for something moving forward. I mean, there's still a lot of uncertainty and who knows when the race schedule is going to get back to normal. But, um, you know, ultimately we all do this sport for enjoyment anyway. Uh, well, I know I do. It's, it's enjoyable for me to train, especially these days. And maybe it's easier for me to say it now because I'm not racing for my livelihood anymore like I used to. Um, my main role is in and around doing promotional work for my sponsors. Uh, I only, as I said to you before, I only race a handful of times a year and typically the last few years, a lot of my promotional travel has been through sort of May, June, July and then again in September, October and on those promotional trips, I don't get to train very much so I'm not really racing much through May through to October. So typically the last few years for me, my main training period has been through our summer here in the Southern Hemisphere in, in Sydney, sort of December, January, February, and I've tried to, off the back of that training, get three or four races in sort of February, March, April. Um, so as you mentioned, right off the top, I got that race in in Geelong, the Aussie Champs, but my next few races in Australia and Asia have been cancelled or postponed. So mm. yeah, I'm just... Uh, I mean, I don't regret doing any of the training. I would have done it anyway. For me, it was for mental health and for quality of life and because I love to do it. So I'm guessing a lot of your listeners, it's the same. I mean, I don't think we should, any of us should feel cheated by missing those races. There'll be many other opportunities to race. I mean, we've been through periods in our sports history before where races were cancelled for whatever reason. And I don't think we've ever quite seen something like this, but... I don't think there's any point crying about it and throwing all the toys out of the cot and, you know, having a tantrum. I think you just, it is what it is. Um, if you've trained up for a big event, then, you know, you've got all that fitness there. Just maintain it, reschedule, reset, and look for something else. Uh, I mean, that's, I think that's all any of us can suggest right now. There's still a lot of uncertainty as to when, I guess, normal programming will resume with regards to racing and a lot of other aspects of our life. So. Um, Maybe you can use this next four-week period as use the training as just a way of escaping 
you know, mental therapy. I know I just got off the indoor trainer before I, I got on here and chatted with you. It's part of my daily routine once I get the kids off to school in the morning. I like to meet a few buddies and go for either a mountain bike ride or or a run. You know, it's been raining here in Australia the last couple of days, so I just jumped on the indoor trainer and um yeah, it's part of it's training is just part of my daily routine as it is for a lot of endurance athletes and whilst we do often love to accentuate that training block with a race at the moment we can't but life goes on you got to adapt exactly no i i love that 100 i think that's what people needed to hear so uh, i'm definitely glad you touched base on that and you know i guess shining some light on some positives this year right like i know unfortunately the season's been somewhat hampered we don't know when it's going to resume uh only time will tell we don't really know right but uh, I guess one of the most recent changes in the sport that we saw kind of came into effect at the end of 2019, of course, was the establishment and rollout of the the PTO, the Professional Triathletes Organization. And no, I guess, of course, you being very well versed in the sport for many years, uh, I think it's safe to say you probably found this as a positive opportunity for the, for the pro athletes out there, right? Absolutely. You know, I think it's funny whenever you talk about a I guess a professional triathletes organization as it's currently called in the past people have wanted to call it a, a union or an athletes association I mean if you I like to look at other sports historically and and to learn maybe what we can bring into our sport that, that may help and I think it's part of the evolution and the development of all sports that at some point or another you know an athletes association or an organization sets up and I think it's a good thing I think you know, the professional athletes are one part of the sport. Obviously, in triathlon, a large part of our participation is the amateur athletes. Um, that's the majority of participation in our sport. But there's also juniors, junior development and grassroots. I think for our sport to push on and develop, all, all of those areas need to, to be working well and to have some sort of focus put on them. And I think for the professional part of our sport this is the next part of that i think this is the next part of our development in terms of fo- focusing on what the professional athletes can do collectively to grow the sport it's not just about wanting more money that's part of it but it's about delivering more it's about helping to grow the sport taking the sport to a wider audience because as a sport we're up against other sports for for government funding for corporate investment for all of those things um Sports and entertainment now, it's a business and there's only so much money to go around and we're up against the other sports. So I think part of taking our sport to a wider audience is how we can package it up, uh, the professional part of it, and take it to a wider audience, which will grow the sport in the grassroots and will also hopefully grow the the participation and, and the number of events that are put on. will grow the amateur uh, part of the sport. So I see it as, as all of the, you know, when our sport's healthy, all of these things are healthy um, and work hand in hand together. But, yeah, I, th- I think it's long overdue that we have a professional triathletes organisation and we have, a, a, I guess, a collective voice in terms of the direction that the sport goes forward. Everybody thinks initially when they said, oh, it's just the pro athletes wanting more money. Well, I think they they deserve and they've earned more money, but it's also there's a huge part of, that is a responsibility on them to show that they can deliver more money, to show that they can deliver growing the game, putting on unbelievable uh, performances in, in the bigger races and taking our sport onto an international stage. Uh, and I think athletes like 
Danny Reef and Jan Fredino and Sebi and Alistair Brownlee, Mario Mola, Katie Savaris. I think they can all do that. I think they're amazing athletes, all of them. Um, I guess the PTO is focused on long-distance triathlon at the moment, but, you know, I'd like to think that in time it, it – you know, you hear the, the saying, a rising tide floats all boats, that it brings the whole level of triathlon and, uh, across the board up. I think, um, you know, it's long overdue and something we need to focus on. Obviously, the Collins Cup has been rolled out as, as a way to launch the PTO. There's a still a lot of uncertainty because that was scheduled for late May um, and a lot of Europe's in shutdown now. That was in Samarin. Um, scheduled for late May, so we'll see um, whether or not that particular event, the Collins Cup, goes ahead as scheduled in late May or whether it's postponed to later in the year, I think is 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 still up in the air. But in, in terms of that, I mean, moving forward, the P, you know, the PTO is, I think the, the pro athletes and the people behind it, they're in for the long haul. We're looking at the, the end game, which is trying to just establish something that is going to serve our sport and all levels of our sport for a long time to come and where the pro athletes sit in that and, and what their role is in helping to grow the sport. So I think it's an exciting thing. It's um, certainly pivotal. It's a huge opportunity. Both Simon and, I, Simon and I have been engaged to help. We're obviously the international team captains for the Collins Cup. I'm actually looking forward to catching up with my old mate Simon in person when, when it finally does go ahead. So, But, yeah, I think... From the perspective of what it can bring to our sport, I think it's just the next step in our evolution in trying to be more professional and trying to step up our game as a sport. And, you know, I, I don't think, you know, all this talk, you see a little bit of chit-chat here and there about what's well, just the pro athletes wanting money. Well, I think they deserve more money, but I think there's a huge responsibility. Now the ball's in their court to help generate a lot of that money moving forward too. So it's more about a collective voice moving forward though, I think, and there's plenty of opportunities ahead and, and, and let's see where it goes. A hundred percent. No, I, I agree with that. And, you know, I'm glad you touched base on the Collins cup, right? Uh, now, of course, that's been a highly anticipated event and just like everything else of the season, uh, everyone's uncertain and couldn't actually tell you, I guess, which races are happening and it all depends how things go over the next couple months. Right. But as you mentioned, PTOs in for the long haul, the Collins cup, you know, if it doesn't happen May 29th, it'll be rescheduled. And uh, regardless, it'll happen eventually. And I think it's going to be a highly anticipated race. And I guess, as you mentioned there, uh, you're one of the team international captains. For the listeners who aren't familiar with the Collins Cup, I guess, and the details, uh, how does that sort of event all play out and work? Well, that's a good question. There's still a lot, I guess, to be resolved on that front. But in essence, it's it's a team-style competition modeled on modeled on similar competitions in other sports, I guess, like the Davis Cup in tennis or, or the Ryder Cup in golf, where based on global rankings, um, the different regions can pick their team and the three regions are the international team, of which Simon and I are a part, the Team Europe and Team US. They're the three three teams. And the Collins Cup, the people behind the Collins Cup and the PTO have pulled in a lot of, I guess, famous ex-triathletes, historically athletes who have won a lot and who have big names in the sport and are hoping that, you know, we can leverage what we've done, a lot of the team captains to help promote this thing. But it's really all about the current generation and the future generations, to be honest. It's setting up a sustainable model moving forward, I think, um, 
and it should be exciting because it's going to be a slightly different format where each country on the male and female side, sorry, each team, each region gets to pick their top four off the global rankings and then the captains themselves actually get a, a pick as well. Um, so we get to pick either off recent performances or the global rankings, um, similar to the way they, they do in the Ryder Cup. The teams, the team captains get a, get a pick as well. Uh, and, you know, you could have an athlete coming back from injury so they haven't raced a lot in the previous 12 months but have come back in the last couple of months and, and really lit it up with their performances. So the avenue's open for them to get a captain's pick and it really will be at the discretion of the captains so we'll, we'll get together. Um, and for the international team, as you mentioned, that's Simon and myself, Lisa Bentley and Erin Baker. So we have to pick. We have a couple of captain's picks on the male and female side who we will hopefully pick to complement our team, the rest of our team, which is named on May the 5th, I think, or May the 4th. Um, the teams will be now uh, announced, all three teams, uh, off the global rankings. And then the race format itself, it's, it's, it's a half Ironman race, but we get different matchups. So there's going to be a point score system and we're going to match up our athletes with the athletes on the other team. And I guess based on strengths and weaknesses and trying to accumulate, it's going to be a point score system as to how it all plays out. So it's not just going to be your traditional race. You know, you're going to have to pit your, your best people up against athletes in, I guess, the best athletes from the other teams. Um, and then there'll be a point score in the head-to-head matchup. So it should be exciting. I think what the organisers have tried to do is just really cultivate a different style of racing that might generate a bit of interest. It's something that's a bit different from the normal racing we see, whether it be ITU racing or Ironman racing, um, but really just trying to mix it up a little bit and generate a little interest around the different personalities in our sport and um, different matchups that we could possibly make and head-to-head match racing in Samarin on, on the actual race day itself. Um, so similar to what you see in the Ryder Cup and the, and the Davis Cup, I'm not exactly sure of the formats and the logistics right now, but that, that's the premise behind it. And, yeah, I think it'll be exciting. I, I, couldn't, I jumped at the chance to get involved because I think some tactics might come into it now, uh, the form of athletes. You know, you're looking at, for, for the international team on the men's front, for instance, our our number one guy right now on the global rankings is Lionel Sanders. So, you know, do we want to put Lionel up against the number one from Team Europe or Team US? He might be best served in another capacity. So, you know, these are all the strategies that in race week itself, the athletes and the team coaches will, will get their heads together and, and the, the head, the, I guess the, the match races, the head-to-head match races will be announced. But, yeah, it should be super exciting, I think. Something a little different in our sport, something that we have seen in other sports. I guess it's not revolutionary, but we haven't actually seen it in triathlon, and I I think it might play out well. I think so, yeah. And, I mean, you guys will be all mic'd up to the athletes as as they race as well. So I think that'll be a really unique format to see from a spectator's perspective, right, to hear what the coaches are saying with the athletes and to hear what the athletes are thinking as they go through these races. And, you know, as you being a captain – like what sort of things are you looking for in athletes as you choose? Like when it comes down to tactics or when it comes to comparing other athletes to other, the other team's athletes, you guys yeah. are going to be the pioneers to this, right? So what are your thoughts on it, I guess? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I think it, it augurs well for people who know the sport well and have experience. And uh, that if you look at the roster of team captains, I think that's the case, but also 
the athletes on the rankings who have been selected for each team or who, who are in line to be selected and also those who are in line for captain's picks. You know, we're talking about some of the best triathletes in the world and, and some of the best in history. So what will be unique about the format, I guess, is you won't have big groups of athletes on the course. So the dynamics of the race itself might be a, bit, a little bit different. And I think that's where the experience of the athletes and the coaches will come into it, uh, matching certain athletes up against others. Because I guess if you have a 20 metres draft zone, as is what's proposed for, for the Collins Cup and fewer athletes on the course, no, no big groups, the dynamics are a little bit different um, of how the race will play out. And I guess that's also important for the captains to take into consideration when you know, getting, getting together to make their picks um, after the actual automatic selections are made because you, you want to pick athletes, I guess, looking at their current form and how they're performing and how they've performed, I guess, in recent races, which may be hard given the current climate, but also looking at their record in big, big races, world championships, how they've performed typically on the, the, the more important days, um, and also what their strengths are in all of the three disciplines, how they might match up against some of the athletes from the other teams, but how they may also complement some of the athletes you've got in your team as well. So I think experience will come into it a lot and, and actually knowing the athletes intimately and their strengths and weaknesses. You know, I think we've got a couple of good discussions ahead of us, the team captains for sure, um, in terms of picking our picks, but also the strategies and the dynamics of the race and how it may unfold. Amazing. Well, I mean, first off, I cannot wait for this event. I mean, fingers crossed by the end of May, things start to get better and we can resume triathlon events, including events like the Collins Cup. But of course, only time will tell here. If it doesn't happen in May, it will happen. It's just going to be rescheduled, right? So it's going to be a big event. Really looking forward to it. So uh, happy to have you on here to talk about it and shine some light on it because I think it's definitely something that people should be uh, looking forward to. It's going to be a great event. But now... You know what? I One of the things I want to talk to you about was I think a lot of athletes would love to hear this from you in particular, you know, getting longevity out of the sport uh, and being so healthy after 25 plus years of triathlon, right? So nutrition and, you know, day-to-day lifestyle habits are a big topic these days in the triathlon realm. Uh, now, do you have any pointers on people as far as like your, your diet, as far as the clean eating you do, or just any other kind of health hacks that you have that you can kind of pass on to people to get that long triathlon career out? Absolutely. I mean, I just, I always try to stay up to date with the latest and greatest information on anything performance related, whether it be the training, recovery, and that includes nutrition and diet as well. So, you know, again, people are very different on that front. Um, I just try to, I think the main thing I applied to any decision I made, and this, this includes nutrition, is just understanding myself and being self-aware. And, and one of the things that was important to me was to be consistent as an athlete, but to also have longevity. So both of those things imply sustainability over time and being able to work at a consistently high level over a long period of time. I mean, that's with your training, that's how you get consistency. I mean, that's how you get great performances with consistency and not just consistency of training, but consistency of self-evaluation, consistency of great sleep patterns, and consistency of nutrition. Consistent performance comes off the back of consistency in all those realms. So, um, and so does longevity, really. So, yeah, as it, as it, I guess, relates to nutrition, I never went overboard. I never really had a diet as such. I don't even use the word. I just had what I would consider a normal or healthy eating patterns. I mean, 
obviously when you're training high volumes and high intensities, you need to recover and refuel um, from a calorie standpoint and also a hydration standpoint, hydration and electrolytes. So I tried to be mindful of all those things and, you know, even in my heavy training phases, I was I would often get up and train early and I'd come home and have a good breakfast uh, and breakfast could be oatmeal or porridge. It could be eggs and avocado on toast. Uh, it could be cereal. Um, then I would go out and train again mid-morning. Lunch would be usually sandwich, chicken, turkey, avocado sandwich uh, and dinner. You know, I'm very lucky. My wife's a great cook. Dinner could be we had red meat, lean meat, one, once or twice a week, a lot of fish, uh, protein, sometimes pasta, just mixed it up. It was, uh, I guess, a variety of all those things. And But I'm not going to sit here and also say that I didn't treat myself. I love chocolate. Um, I'd eat chocolate most days. I love ice cream. Uh, I used to drink a lot of chocolate milk. Um, and, you know, when I was in very, very heavy training, uh, particularly preparing for an Ironman, you know, you're doing longer hours and burning more calories. I would supplement between meals with protein shakes, often a protein smoothie. I'd have either bananas or berries. I'd put some sort of protein powder in, a nice, uh, a good quality protein powder with water or milk and yogurt and, and really supplement my calorie intake, sometimes one or two or even three protein shakes a day between the major meals. So, I was sort of grazing all day. I think it's important to match your calorie expenditure with your intake. Um, but I'm not going to say I didn't, you know, treat myself. You know, I, if I wanted a glass of wine with dinner, I would. If I wanted a beer with dinner, I'd have that. Anything in moderation. I just didn't go overboard. I didn't do anything that I felt was going to sabotage my training the next day. Um, you know, and, and particularly in those heavy training phases when I was up at altitude preparing for Hawaii, I mean, you, you can't, it's hard to consume as many calories as you're burning. So, yeah, I just tried to do things sensibly and, and in moderation. Um, but also, I wanted to enjoy myself because, like you say, I mean, what, what's the key to longevity? Well, I think part of it is enjoying yourself. You know, I used to train with athletes who had very regimented diets and would be extremely strict, um, you know, and, and that may have worked for them. But again, a self-awareness needs to come into it. My goal was to be sort of performing at a high level for a long period of time. So I knew for me that implied being in the sport for a long time. So I wanted to make it enjoyable as well. Uh, and I certainly didn't do anything that sabotaged or undermined my performance. But, yeah, if I felt like having some chocolate or if I wanted to have some ice cream for dessert, I would do it. I would do it. And so long as I made sure that I was putting in my body a lot of the things that it needed to recover and replenish after a hard day's training and, and just prepare for the next day's training. Um, but just a sensible sort of well-rounded approach, similar to what I would apply to a lot of other, other aspects of, of, you know, daily life and training, whether it be your, your, tra- your, your actual physical training or your recovery protocols, just a common sense approach that would lead to sustainability and consistency over time. Perfect. I, I love that. I think that's definitely the best sensible 
advice to hear. So uh, I definitely love that. And to get the longevity of the sport, I think is everyone's ultimate goal. So uh, the longer we do this, what we love, the better. So I think that's some great solid advice. Uh, and, you know, I guess lastly, I guess one of the other topics people love hearing about is the on-course fueling. Uh, now you've been doing this for many, many years. I'm sure it's changed over the years. I guess right now you're primarily focusing on the 70.3 distance. So are you following any specific fueling protocols in place or do you just base it off how you feel in the race or sort of what's your trick or any advice you have for other 70.3 athletes out there? Well, that's a great question. And again, it's not a one size fits all. Nutrition is such an individual thing. I mean, you can have two identical athletes and identical by size, I guess, height and weight, but physiologically they're different. Their fitness levels are different and metabolically, nutritionally, they're different. The rate at which they can absorb calories in their stomach or fluid is different and also the rate at which they burn calories or sweat is different so I guess what's different now to when I was doing Ironman sweat tests are very easy to do and very cheap and accessible you can do you can do a sweat test where you put a patch on your skin and either hop on the treadmill or the bike trainer at your whatever you're training for whether it be a half Ironman or an Ironman or even an Olympic distance event you know what your intensity levels are at those different distances. And so you can dial up that intensity level for an hour on an indoor trainer or a treadmill. And hopefully in a similar climate, you've got to sim- simulate the climate to what you want to race in. And, and you know, that patch you put on your skin will ab- absorb the sweat and then you can send it off. You put it in a little container and send it off. And th- these are tests that are accessible to everybody. Now you can just search online. Sweat testing is, it's quite common. You know, back in the day, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, you had to go to a, a laboratory, a high-performance laboratory to have your sweat tested and it's much more accessible now and I think that's that's the, the starting point. Um, once you have that information, not only how much fluid you lose per hour but what the composition of that sweat is, how many electrolytes you lose per hour and what your calorie burn rate is, I think that's the starting point for formulating a, a nutrition plan. At a certain intensity level, that's different in all of us. So once you know, you've unlocked that information, it's very easy on top of that to write a nutrition plan. So, you know, I used to I used to, like a lot of people, just formulate a nutrition plan based on my my race simulation, my large or my longer race simulation in training. And, you know, if I was training for an Ironman, that might be a, a five or six hour ride with one to two hours worth of Ironman paced efforts in the second half of that ride and then a run off the bike, you know, anywhere up to an hour at your goal marathon pace. So that's a six or seven hour session you're doing there and that's not the kind of session that you do daily. You only do a handful of those in in the build-up or preparation for any Ironman. But they're, they're key sessions because it's very hard to simulate the duration of an Ironman combined with the intensity unless you do the Ironman itself. And I wouldn't advocate anyone goes out to do the Ironman to train, you know, to do those distances at that intensity to train for an Ironman. We, you know, it's commonly thought that we break those distances down and we do. Um, again, for consistency of training and longevity, you don't go out and do an Ironman each week to train for an Ironman. You break it down into smaller portions, but that longer race simulation is probably the session that most closely simulates the duration combined with the intensity. So that's the session where you can 
really modify or dial up or down your your nutrition plan as as needed. Um, and that's how I used to do it. And I think that still should form an important part of um, formulating any nutrition plan. But the starting point should be a sweat test, I think. Um, certainly something I didn't have access to when I was racing in Hawaii, but the athletes now at all levels have access to that. And I think from memory or from my understanding, they're only like between $50 or $80 to do. And I think that that's a worthwhile investment when you consider what we spend on bikes and airfares to get to races, entry fees. You know, a lot of the races that we, we do, you need to qualify for. So there's a lead-up event. I think 50 or $80 is a very uh, worthwhile investment when you get the sort of knowledge that you get from a sweat test. And I think one thing that's changed now that I do in my current 70.3s that I never used to do was separate my my nutrition, and by nutrition I mean calories or grams of carbohydrates, my fueling, from my hydration, which is a volume of fluid with an electrolyte composition that you need to stay hydrated and to ward off cramping. Um, you know, I used to mix all those things together, which makes drinks very concentrated and you know, as you get more dehydrated, in, particularly in the hotter races, and as the duration of those races lengthens, your blood volume decreases, so it's hard to absorb concentrated drinks. So I think one of the, certainly the advancements that I've seen or the theories within nutrition is separating your, your calories or your grams of carbs from, from your hydration and electrolytes. Um, and you're able to dial those things up or down exclusively based on what kind of climate you're in because typically obviously if you're in a and you know we do a summer sport so it's typically hotter races and I mean I've raced in Canada a lot um I used to race in Muskoka did that race quite a few times and that's a hot humid race particularly humid um wasn't super hot high 20s celsius but humidity was high and a lot of the races you do around the world are in you know it's a summer sport triathlon so a lot of the races can be hot and humid and often in those situations, you sweat differently to what you do in a cooler race. But your calorie burn may be similar at a, at a particular intensity level. That's, for argument's sake, pick the half Ironman distance. The rate at which your body will, will burn carbohydrates will be similar in a cold and a hot climate. So your calorie or your gel intake will be similar between a hot and a cold climate. But what will change drastically is your fluid intake and and your sweat rates. So, um, you know, I think to athletes for in-race nutrition, my first suggestion would be if you can do a sweat test and try and do that test and simulate it in a climate similar to what you want to race in or your goal event is. And there's your starting point for a nutrition plan and then test that nutrition plan in a long race simulation. Um, you know, that's one thing that I used to do. I guess when you have a sweat test to start with, though, you're coming from a much more um, calculated place and a place of knowledge rather than trial or error and the theory. So, you know, one of the great things we've seen in the last five, ten years, and not just in triathlon, in all sports and in life, is how technology and innovation has infiltrated our sport and some of it is gimmicky, I guess, but a lot of it is worthwhile if you know how to use those tests to get information and ultimately then how you, you know how to interpret that information to implement in a training and racing sense to, to go quicker because that's ultimately what we're talking about. Absolutely right. And 
You know what? I actually, I absolutely love that information you gave there. I think a lot of people would be super happy with that. I think sweat tests are a very integral part of, you know, formulating a plan for yourself as nutrition plans always come down to the individual, right? So you said that really well and really awesome tips overall there. And you know what? Obviously I could keep chatting with you all day here, but I think that's a great spot to end things off. So I guess before we wind this down officially here, uh, where can the listeners go to follow you on social media? Yeah, I'm on social media in different places. I'm a, I'm a bit of a dinosaur with social media, but um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I think my, my, well, I think my handle is Crowy Alexander. It's also the same on Instagram, and I'm also on Facebook. Um, I have a website, craigalexander.net, which is long overdue an update. So I think one of the things that, you know, when I was racing at the height of my career and, and training and racing was the – was the priority. I was so focused on that. I had people around me to organize a lot of the other things. Certainly one of the things the last three or four years I've tried to do more of as I've trained a lot less and raced a lot less is just be more up to speed with all those, I guess the promotion within sport, but all those different avenues to engage with an audience. Um, you know, I've also got a coaching company, Sensego, which has its own Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, so it's been an education for me, being an older guy, 46, turning 47 this year. Um, it's a different world. I've got my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, to help me with a lot of this stuff. and um, But it's good. I think if people are certainly interested and they're fans of, of you and of the sport, it's a great way to engage with your audience. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to have to devote a lot less time to training, a lot more time to social media, I guess. <laughs> it's the way of the future eh that's <laughs> oh, good stuff man honestly Craig all the best man uh, take care and uh, thanks for coming on the chat man appreciate that thanks Stephen thanks for having me on thanks for cheers thanks for promoting our sport as well I ah, appreciate it man take care awesome well that's a wrap with Craig Alexander thanks so much for listening in everyone and if you enjoy this episode among others and please just take that minute to open up your Apple podcast app on your iPhone search pacing racing and click the podcast click subscribe and then scroll down to the bottom just leave us a quick written review it takes less than a one minute to do but it goes a long long way in helping me out so to all who do that thanks so much it's highly appreciated and other than that guys happy training and if you want to follow me on zwift then uh definitely search steven langenhausen and then we could definitely get in some workouts uh i definitely see a lot more of these being in the near future so uh definitely give us a follow anyway guys take care chat soon stay safe and cheers